Let's turn our Bibles back to Hebrews chapter 7 and read the precious words of God and give the sense about the comparison that the Holy Spirit led our brother Paul to make between the Lord Jesus Christ and Melchizedek. We saw that there are three verses of historical record about Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. We saw one verse of prophecy that God was foretelling a priest that would come and that he was swearing and would not repent. There would be a new priest after the order of Melchizedek and it would, he would be forever after the order of Melchizedek. In Hebrews chapter 7, we have made our way down through verse 7. Verses 1 through 3 are a summary of what we know and what we do not know about Melchizedek. Verse 1 tells us what we know, and verse 2 tells us what we know and helps us with a couple terms of interpretation. And verse 3 tells us what we don't know about him. We don't know his father or his mother, his descent, his genealogy, when he was born and when he died. So as far as his priesthood is concerned... It is an open-ended, perpetual priesthood. And that is going to be the chief comparison with the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's no record, then no one could say when he died. If there's no record of him transferring his priesthood to his son or a grandson, then we assume he still has it based on the written record. And that's the tight argument that the Apostle Paul is making. It may be tight for loose minds, but I hope we'll just submit ourselves to the Word of God. Amen. We have one long sentence covering the first three verses, and it ends with the words that are the key. He abideth a priest continually, meaning there is no recorded end to his priesthood. Jesus is going to be like that, a priest forever. Amen. Then we saw in verses 4 through 6 that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, proving that Melchizedek was greater than even Abraham, who was the father of the Jews, the father of the faithful, the friend of God, and a great saint in his own right. The last part of verse 6 introduced the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, who had all the great promises of God. And verse 7 tells us that the greater man gives blessings to a lesser man, so that Melchizedek is greater again than Abraham by the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. He was able to call down from God a blessing on Abraham, and then he was able to turn and be an intercessor for Abraham and bless God for the great victory that Abraham had over the four kings. Amen. And we're thankful for verse 7 that tells us, without all contradiction, the less is blessed the better. That's a rule of blessing. The priests of God in Israel, Numbers chapter 6, were given a particular blessing that they were to speak upon the people of Israel, and they could bring a blessing down from heaven upon the Lord's people. So here we have Melchizedek, who abides a priest continually because there's no record of his demise, in verse 3. He received tithes of Abraham, showing that he was Abraham's superior in things pertaining to God. And then he was able to bless Abraham, which again showed the same thing. And so we come to verse 8. And our brother Paul is still dealing with tithing, but he's looking at a different angle of tithing. Verse 8. And here, 
that is in the Jews' religion on earth, men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. So another point, that a man who lives forever received tithes from Abraham because there's no witness of his death, meaning there's no written record of it in the word of God. It's witness that he must be still alive for a long time because there's no death certificate for him. You know, all the genealogies say that so that Aaron begat Ithamar, and Ithamar begat, and it goes through the generations of the priesthood, but there is no such thing for this man Melchizedek. And here it is that men that die receive tithes. But Melchizedek was again a superior receiver of tithes because there's no record of his death. Verse 9. And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. Through verse 8. Beginning at verse 4, down through verse 8, which are five verses, Melchizedek is being compared to Abraham. Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So the comparison is, Melchizedek was a greater priest and had a greater relationship to God than Abraham did. But now when we come to verse 9, the Apostle Paul is going to tighten the argument up even more and say, Levi... The father of Israel's priests was inferior as well to Melchizedek. And as I may so say, Levi also, not just Abraham, but Levi, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. Levi received, receives tithes. Can you, we got three positions, don't we? We have Melchizedek, Levi, and the people of Israel. Levi has a commandment from God to take tithes of the people of Israel, showing that by God's commandment, he is in a superior relationship to God in doing the service of a priest. But Levi paid tithes to another man that shows that Melchizedek was above the Levitical priesthood. That's what verse 9 is reasoning. And Paul goes on to say in verse 10, For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, that's tight reasoning. And if your ears are dull of hearing, you don't quickly grasp the argument. But the apostle gives it to us. Levi was in Abraham seminally. And that's the word that's used to describe the seed or the semen in a man, whereby God looks at the fact that Levi, coming out of Abraham, who was greater than Levi, by Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek, so did Levi. And so the apostle is just showing the superiority of Melchizedek to every great father and patriarch in the Jews' religion. That Melchizedek was superior. And the whole purpose of this chapter is Jesus Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. So we just keep seeing the greatness of Melchizedek. Levi also, not just Abraham paid tithes, but verse 9 tells us that Levi paid tithes as well. For he was in the loins of his father, and that's where all of us came from, were the loins of our fathers all the way back to Adam. Verse 11. Now he's going to bring in the law of God. If therefore perfection 
were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Verse 11 requires you to remember that there's 500 years between the setting up of of the Levitical priesthood, approximately 500 years, and the promise that David wrote, the prophecy that David wrote in Psalm 110 verse 4, when God swore and would not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There is a new order of a priest, singular, made in Psalm 110 verse 4, That's 500 years after the law was made, which established the Levitical priesthood. So Paul is reasoning, if the Levitical priesthood could bring perfection, did the Jews believe that it could? Oh yes, they put their trust in the law of God and the Levitical priesthood. And Paul is saying, listen, if you read the book of Leviticus and you think that's as good as it gets, why did David write 500 years later, that God had sworn there needed to be a new kind of a priest, one after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron, showing that, now we've got a third name mentioned, Aaron. We've had Abraham, Levi, and now Aaron, coming right down to the greatest high priest and the source of all the high priests in Israel. Moses' own brother. If, if the Levitical priesthood was able to bring perfection in worshiping God and in serving God and making peace with God, if that's possible, if that's what you think, then why does Psalm 110 and verse 4 say there needs to be a priest after another order, and there will be, because God swore to it and will not repent? There's a question mark. It's a rhetorical question. It's it's asking you, if the Levitical priesthood was all that was needed, you Hebrew believers, then why is there that verse in Psalm 110? You know, for those of you who know Hebrews chapter 4, the Apostle Paul does the same argument from Psalm 95, where it says that there remaineth a rest to the people of God. And Paul says, now wait a minute, you Jews trust in the Sabbath day being your rest. Some of you Jews trust in Canaan being your rest. But why did David write in Psalm 95, about 500 years after Canaan, that there remaineth a rest to the people of God? Because there must be a third rest. And let me tell you what that rest is. It's trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and ceasing from all your labors for salvation. Amen. That's Hebrews 4. Paul likes arguments like that. Right. And we should always be remembering that from Abraham to Moses, there was 430 years. Galatians 3.17 tells us that's how long it was. Then there's about 500 years from Moses to David. Then there's, in round numbers, a thousand years from David to the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to remember that timing, because why is there a verse in Psalm 110 if the book of Leviticus is all sufficient? And the Hebrews were tempted to believe that the book of Leviticus was sufficient, and those priests were enough. But no, there's that one verse. Is it safe to base an argument in the Bible on one verse? Is it safe to base an argument in the Bible on one word of a verse? Yes, we've learned that, haven't we? Because the Lord Jesus Christ did it that way, and so did our brother Paul. Do we have eight examples in the New Testament? We're going to add a ninth right now in a few minutes. But do we have eight examples in the New Testament? We do. 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and our brother Paul arguing doctrinal points from single words. Verse 12. The Levitical priesthood and the law that those priests taught must not have been good enough because God had Psalm 110 verse 4 written. Verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Do you know how powerful this is to a Hebrew believer? You're kidding. Though they already knew it because they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, but they were tempted to go back under the law of Moses. And here Paul is convincing them, don't go back. Because the priesthood's been changed, and you know it's been changed because of Psalm 110. But if the priesthood's been changed, which taught the law of God, then the law itself has been changed as well. Next verse. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no tribe gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. In all the law of Moses, there is no evidence that a man from the tribe of Judah could be a priest. And therefore, since the things that I'm presenting to you are about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is a son of David, and you all know that, that not only has there been a change in the priesthood, but there's been a change in the law of God. Because the law of God says you had to be from Levi to be a priest. There's nothing said about the tribe of Judah. So those four verses from 11 down through verse 14 are arguing that the priesthood's been changed because of Psalm 110, and the law of Moses has been changed because... The one he's speaking of, Jesus, the Son of God, is from the tribe of Judah, and the law of Moses didn't allow someone from the tribe of Judah. Did the Jews know that Jesus of Nazareth was the son of David? Oh, yes. Do we have a genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 that traces Joseph, his legal father, all the way back to Abraham through David by Solomon? Yes. How about Luke chapter 3? We have the genealogy of Mary that's traced all the way back to Adam through David by way of Nathan, a different son. Joseph was a son of David. Mary was a son of David. Jesus was a son of David. When he entered Jerusalem for the last time, what did the crowds in Jerusalem cry out when they sang Hosanna to the highest to the son of David? They all knew he was the son of David. If he's the son of David, then he came out of the tribe of Judah. If he came out of the tribe of Judah, then the law must have been overthrown as well regarding priesthood because the Bible doesn't say anything about anyone from the tribe of Judah at the altar of God. Can I chase that for just a minute? Those of you who are excited about the tight reasoning in the Bible. The argument from silence does not work in the Bible. Right. The Bible doesn't say anything about a man from Judah being a priest. Does that allow a man from Judah being a priest? Or does that condemn a man from Judah being a priest? It condemns them because there is a positive commandment that says you have to be from the tribe of Levi and a son of Aaron in order to be a priest. Here's how people reason with the Bible falsely. They argue from silence. Well, the Bible doesn't say that we can't. And since the Bible doesn't say that we can't, then we must be able to. No. The Bible is a closed system. 
And if there's a positive commandment, that's all God had to say. When God said the priests were to come out of the tribe of Levi and, and be the sons of Aaron, that precludes everyone else without having to state the fact. Right. He didn't have to say priests must come from Levi, the sons of Aaron, and by the way, I mean, they cannot come from the tribe of Benjamin. They cannot come from the tribe of Judah. They cannot, do you know how long the Bible would be if it did that for every commandment? This is the argument from silence. And Paul is condemning it, saying that because it's silent about Judah, the way that our modern world uses the Bible, well, the Bible doesn't say we can't do it, so let's go ahead and do it. Now, follow with me, and you've heard this many times before, but I want to make it as practical as possible. The Bible does not say that we cannot use cookies and milk for the Lord's Supper. The Bible does not say that we cannot use cookies and milk for the Lord's Supper. Can we use cookies and milk for the Lord's Supper? No. No. On what basis? Because we are told to use bread and wine. Because we have a positive commandment, the Lord doesn't need to waste pages of Scripture telling us all the things we cannot do. We do what the Bible says. Amen. Could Moses have made the ark? Not Mo- Moses didn't make an ark. Yes, he did. It was small, though. Right. Could, could, Noah, could Noah have made the ark out of cedar wood? No, not in please God. Did God say, do not make the ark out of cedar wood? How did he say, do not make the ark out of cedar wood? Make it out of gopher gopher wood. When God says, make it out of gopher wood, that means you make it out of gopher wood. And that's how we apply the word of God. So that one of the characteristics of our church is we don't have musical instruments. Because when we read the New Testament about music, it says, sing. And the Bible full well knows all about playing and all about different instruments, but it says sing. So we sing, believing that that positive command rules out anything else that would alter that singing, like playing. This is how, that's how we reason from the argument from silence. Let me give you another example of it. In Matthew chapter 12, when the disciples were walking through that cornfield, they picked some corn and plucked it and rubbed it off in their hands and they ate it. Jesus said, you, you get, he, the, the Pharisees condemned the disciples. And Jesus answered the Pharisees by saying, Are you ignorant of the scriptures? Have you never read the scriptures? How that David ate the showbread. And the Bible doesn't say anything about him eating it. It's only lawful for the priest to eat. Does it say anywhere in the Old Testament that someone from Judah can't eat the showbread? No. There's just one verse that says, The showbread is for the priests. But there being one positive verse of the showbread being for the priests precludes all other tribes from touching that showbread. Now you say, that's a simple point. Go meet with somebody today and ask them how a New Testament church service ought to be run. And they'll say, well, there ain't no verse against it. So we're going to parachute down from an airplane. We're going to land in our bikini briefs. And we're going to have a Sunday school contest and a pie throwing contest. The Bible doesn't say we can't do that. And they go on and on and on and on with all sorts of inventions because they say there's no verse that says we can't. But when the Bible describes a New Testament worship service, it gives us positive commands and we follow those. We preach, we pray, we sing, we fellowship, we have the Lord's Supper. We do those things. That's the rabbit trail.
Boom, the rabbit's dead. Let's go back to Hebrews 7. Some of you were, were rejoicing in the tight reasoning of the Apostle Paul. And one aspect of that tight reasoning is, in verse 13 and verse 14, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Right. Well, if he spake nothing, can't, couldn't he just jump in and do it if he wanted to? No, because he said nothing, but he said something positive about the tribe of Levi, then it automatically precludes the others about which he said nothing. The argument from silence, that since God is silent, we can put in whatever we want, is false when it comes to reasoning from the Bible. Verse 15. Now in verse 14 it said, It is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. There was plenty of evidence that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah because he was the son of David. And therefore, the priesthood had been changed, and therefore the law had been changed. But there's something in verse 15 that Paul said, and it is yet far more evident. There's something far more evident that the law has changed, is his point, that he's still continuing. It is evident that the law has changed because Jesus came from Judah, not Levi. It is far more evident that the law has changed For that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. It is yet far more evidence. There there is far more evidence that the law has been set aside as concerning priesthood by the fact that Jesus is made after the similitude or the likeness of Melchizedek with an endless life. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And because there is that change, that is far more evident that the law has been set aside, but there is a new order of a totally different kind of priest that has the power of an endless life instead of just a carnal commandment from the law of Moses. Now, why would Paul call the Old Testament a carnal commandment? Because the Old Testament was physical, material, External, temporal, sensual, bodily, visible. And the New Testament and the promises of it are eternal and spiritual and internal. That's why Jesus said, God seeketh those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's an internal religion of truth rather than external religion of outward form and ritual. And so in verse 15, it is yet far more evident that there's been a change in the law because that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there's another priest, that's just reminding you of Psalm 110 verse 4, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life, for he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Paul just keeps going back and saying to you, the reader, God said, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110. If God raised up a new order of priest and forget that the fulfillment of that prophecy came from the tribe of Judah, that was one good point I just made. Here's a better point. From Psalm 110 and verse 4, this new priest is a priest based in the power of an endless life, which is so superior to the weak, dying priests of the Levitical Code. Right. 
So it is far more evident that there's been a change of the law because now we have a priest that lives forever. And he was made a priest by God declaring it in Psalm 110 rather than just a carnal commandment of the book of Leviticus. Verse 18. For there is verily, based on the facts that I've just given you, there is verily of a certain truth a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Verse 18, for there is verily a disannulling. What was disannulled? The commandment that priests would come from Levi and out of the loins of Aaron, and they would be sufficient for the ceremonial worship of Israel under the Old Testament to make peace with God ceremonially so they wouldn't be consumed on the spot. That commandment has been disannulled by Psalm 110 and the arrival of whom Psalm 110 spoke of, and that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There's been a disannulling of that commandment because it was weak and unprofitable. It couldn't put away sin. It couldn't make peace with God. It couldn't grant full forgiveness. And now there is full forgiveness. There is peace with God. And we have hope of that peace. And we ought to draw nigh unto God because we have a brand new priest who lives forever from the tribe of Judah who is not weak and unprofitable for our souls but will save us with an everlasting salvation. Paul's reasoning as we work our way down through verse 19. The law made nothing perfect but the bringing in of a better hope did. What's the better hope? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The better hope is that God sent his son to save sinners from their sins. And he has been raised from the dead and sits in heaven at God's right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. That is a much better hope than some priest being a descendant of Aaron who lived for 20 years and then was retired and put out to pasture. Because you could only be a priest from 30 to 50. 20 years was the extent of your priesthood. And they couldn't put away sins because every year they had to have the Day of Atonement, didn't they? Every single year, one high priest taking the blood of bullocks into the holiest of all to make sacrifice for the people on the mercy seat underneath the cherubim and still have to do it again the next year and the next year and the next because it was weak and unprofitable. These Hebrews had heard the gospel, believed the gospel, been baptized, and they were tempted to go back into the Jews' religion because they were being persecuted for it. They knew that the temple in Jerusalem was God's temple. They knew that the word of God read in that temple was God's word. They knew the priests had been ordained by God. That that was hard. Do you know how easy it's been for us? In many cases, they had to leave that in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's showing, listen, if you think you're leaving a priesthood, let me tell you about Jesus. As he said in 3.1, consider, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Our profession is Christians. We have a high priest, and he's a whole lot better than anything they have from the Levitical Code. And so here we are at verse 18. There has been a disannulling of the commandment going before. That commandment was that the sons of Aaron, out of the tribe of Levi, are God's priests. Verse 19, there's a reason why the law has been disannulled. The law made nothing perfect. No one could get saved. 
No one could get saved by the priests of Aaron out of the tribe of Levi. But the bringing in of a better hope did make things purchased perfect, perfect, by the which we draw nigh unto God. That better hope, we go straight to the Lord. We don't have to go to a priest with our little female lamb. We don't have to go to the priest with a turtle dove to pop its head off. We have a better hope. We can go straight to God. He's already taught that in this book. Hebrews 4, 16. Therefore, let us go boldly to the throne of grace to obtain help in time of need. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our great high priest seated in the heavenly places. Chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Right in front of that. So we have a better hope by the which we draw nigh unto God. What are we going to do with today's sermon? Just hear it and go home and forget it? We ought to draw nigh unto God. We can go straight to the God of heaven. We can go straight to Jehovah. We can go straight to the Lord with all capital letters because we have the Lord with little letters as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The law has been disannulled. There's a new one, and it's based on Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So verses 15 down through 19 are explaining the law has been changed. There's a new order of priests. There's a new tribe that has now given us our priest. That law has been disannulled because it was so weak and unprofitable. We have a better hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by that we should draw nigh to God. I hope I am making it simple enough for you to understand these verses. New argument. Verse 20. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. Now you probably had English teachers when you were learning how to write that didn't like you using two negatives in one clause, did they? But look what we have here in this verse. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. What is that telling us? He had an oath that made him a priest. He had an oath. In parentheses, verse 21. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, the Lord, the Lord swear. Is, do we have an argument from one word? Because Psalm 110 verse 4 says the Lord swear then Paul is making an argument. Jesus Christ's priesthood is based on an oath of God and the Levitical priests were not based on an oath of God. So again, point number 89, Jesus Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood. I ho- Are you with me on that? It's sweet. We can trust every word of God. This is argument number nine. And for those of you who have forgotten the other eight, see me afterwards. It's wonderful to see Paul and Jesus argue from single word. I got a couple where you argue from single letters, but that'll get you a little more excited if, afterwards. Verse 20 is two negatives, meaning that this new priest, after the order of Melchizedek, was made with an oath. But those priests that were made priests from the tribe of Levi that were the sons of Aaron, they weren't made priests with an oath. But this Jesus was made a priest with an oath. By the terminology of Psalm 110, verse 4, where it said, The Lord swear. 
The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 22, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. By so much, a changed law, a new tribe, the kingly tribe produces the priest. So we have a king priest in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. A priest that even Abraham paid tithes to. Everything that's been said so far, we have a surety. And the real sureness of that 22nd verse of what it's trying to tell us is if God swore, then that is certain. It is not a carnal commandment that Israel was lax on at times, so they lost the genealogies of their priests when they were taken captive. But if God swore, then this priesthood is certain forever. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. What was so much that made him the surety of this better testament? Because God swore with an oath. The point he's making in these three verses, 20 through 22, is in Psalm 110, we have the word swear. Because we have the word swear, there's an oath involved from God himself about this priest. Therefore, Jesus is a great surety of the New Testament. Now, Paul's not going to talk about the New Testament right now. He's going to wait till he gets to chapter 8. In chapter 8, it's all about the New Covenant. The whole chapter 8 is about the New Covenant. Right here, he just mentions it. But who's the surety? Who's the one that's going to guarantee that all the promises and the benefits contained in the New Covenant actually come to pass? The Lord Jesus Christ is. How is he? How do we know that for sure as our surety? Because he swore with an oath. You say, well, that's a... Oh, it's sweet point. God doesn't have to swear. When God makes a promise, do you know what? It's good enough because God cannot lie. But do you know what he does for our comfort from time to time? He swears with an oath. You know, in Hebrews chapter 6, it tells us that we have hope as an anchor for our souls because God, by two immutable things, guaranteed the performance of his covenant. What were the two things? He promised it. And then he said, well, if you don't believe my promise, I'll swear by myself. And so he swore by himself. When we go to court, we swear by God. And the reason Hebrews 6 explains to us, we swear, so help me God. We swear by God because we're appealing to the highest authority in the universe to give credibility to our words. God, because he could not swear by anyone higher, swore by himself. Isn't that wonderful? Do you know why he did it? To let the heirs of eternal life know the immutability of his counsel. My purpose to save you can never be overthrown. Not only will I promise it to you, but I will swear by myself that I'll do it. That's Hebrews 6. The last half of Hebrews 6 is all about that transaction with Abraham where he swore by himself. Surely, blessing I will bless thee. And then he swore again when he raised up the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord hath sworn, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's leave verse 22. Another argument. 117. That's to make you think about how many we're, re- we're rolling through in Hebrews chapter 7. 
our brother Paul, oh, he got a chance to write this epistle to his countrymen, his brethren. He doesn't even tell them who he is. He just starts out God, who at sundry times, it's a wonderful book. Brother, do you know if he had said Paul to my Hebrew brethren in many places, they wouldn't have read it. The Jews did not like Paul because he had left their religion to go preach to the Gentiles. So he just starts off with God. There's so many ways to prove that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. If you don't know that from just reading the New Testament, we'll get you some help afterwards. But there's lots of ways to know that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And do you know there have been whole volumes written on the fact that Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews? Verse 23. Another argument. And they... That is the priests out of the tribe of Levi, the sons of Aaron. And they truly were many priests. Why were there so many priests under the law? Because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. They kept dying. That's why there were so many. Paul's. Oh, it's sweet. Consider the high priest of our profession. Consider it, he told us in 3.1. How about verse 4 of chapter 7? Now consider how great this man was. We're talking about Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's another reason he was great. Under the law of Moses, there were just thousands of priests. Why were there thousands? Because they kept dying. They were all mortal men. Verse 24. But this man, the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, but this man... Because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Those priests kept changing. What if you lived to be 70 years of age? What is the minimum number of priests you had during your lifetime? Good math, brother. The minimum number would be four priests. The maximum number could be much greater than that. What if priest number two... When you were a teenager and in your 20s was a great priest. Everyone in Israel knew that he had the ear of God. And God blessed him abundantly and he was a holy and a righteous priest. And he knew you and your family. And when you came, he went the extra steps to make sure that your sacrifices were done just right and pleasing to the Lord. And he had wonderful words of encouragement and instruction for you. How long did that blessing last? 20 years. From his age of 30 to the age of 50 or less, depending on when you develop that kind of a trust in him. Then what happened to him? He was retired. Then what happened to him? He died. So there was this changeable priesthood. You just kept getting new priests. You'd have to go introduce yourself to him and you'd be wondering, is this priest even heard? You say, weren't all the priests heard? Think about something. How about Eli's sons compared to Eli? Would you like Eli to die and leave you with Eli's sons? Thankfully, they all died the same day. How about Samuel? Was Samuel decent in his relationship with God? What about his sons? Pitiful. So when Samuel dies and you're stuck with his sons, what did Israel do? Absolutely. Give us a king. We are not going to submit to these sons of yours. We want someone from a different tribe and we want a king like the nations around us. So we have verses 23 and 24. They truly, under the Old Testament, from the tribe of Levi, the sons of Aaron, 
those priests, the Levitical priesthood, that the book of Leviticus is written about, they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. So if you knew one that had the ear of God, you did not know what was going to happen when he died. But this man, the Lord Jesus, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Do you know what the Lord Jesus Christ says about himself in Revelation chapter 1? I was dead, and I am alive. I live forevermore. That's the kind of priest he is. He did die for three days and three nights, was buried in the heart of the earth, but he rose from the dead and led captivity captive and ascended into heaven and sat down at God's right hand and he's sitting there today and he'll be sitting there tomorrow and for as long as eternity lasts, which is a decent length of time, he'll be sitting at God's right hand making intercession for us because he is alive forevermore. And that is the number one point from Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus Christ has an endless priesthood. He is a perpetual priest. He is an eternal priest. His priesthood doesn't change. We can trust in him forever. Totally different from what the Jews had to do under the changeable priesthood out of Aaron and out of the tribe of Levi. Wherefore, one of the sweetest verses of Hebrews 7, wherefore, wherefore, what's a wherefore, therefore, Wherefore is drawing a conclusion. If this man continues forever and has an unchangeable priesthood, if he has been sworn with an oath that he will forever be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, we may draw this conclusion. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Amen. What a wonderful verse. Our eternal life, our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins rests upon the ability of the Lord Jesus Christ to make intercession for us and his endless life, which means he'll be making that intercession forever. He's going to outlive you. Except you're going to live as long as him. Because we're both going to be eternally together in heaven. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. The reason the word also is in there because it's comparing two things. One, Jesus has an unchangeable priesthood. Two, because of that unchangeable priesthood, he is able also to save to the uttermost. And the word uttermost is not a word of of quality or extent as it is of time. Because the point here is time. You know, it's not that we grab all the phases of salvation and try to jam them into verse 25. What we want to see in verse 25 is the length of time. He is able to save you to the uttermost. No matter if there's some future event in your life here in this world or standing before God in the day of judgment a thousand years from now. He is able to save you to the uttermost because he'll still be at God's right hand. He's going. If you run to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and lay hold of him, he is able to save you to the uttermost. This verse is not teaching a condition of how you get to heaven because I can turn you to 1 Peter 3.18 where it has some of the very similar words and it says he is able to bring us to God by him. 
If you want to lay hold of Jesus Christ by faith, you can know with certainty that he does not have a changeable priesthood and he is going to save you the uttermost. He's not going to die on you and his intercession cease. Right. He'll be doing it forever. Amen. I'm, I'm, we're almost done. But listen, brethren, flip and hold your hand at Hebrews 7 and look at Romans 5 and 8 with me very quickly. Romans 5 and 8, very quickly. I want you to understand the importance and the weight of the verse that we just read. The three verses that we just read. 23 through 25. Those are weighty verses. That Jesus, because he doesn't die, has an unchangeable priesthood. And therefore he's able to save us to the uttermost. Because he ever liveth. He's still doing something on our behalf. We talk about the, the birth of Jesus Christ We preach about his death and we preach about his resurrection, but we never want to forget the life that he has right now. It said in that verse, Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save us because of that life he has right now and that he's going to have because he ever liveth that life that he has now to make intercession for us. I want to show you from the Bible, that's not the only place it appears. Some of you know these verses. Just rejoice in them if you know them. I'm rejoicing in them and I know them. But there's some here who need to hear them again. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. Romans 5.10 For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, and we say, praise the Lord, thank the Lord, for Jesus dying to reconcile us to God when we were His enemies. But Paul would say, much more. Being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Isn't that precious? Jesus died for us, but now Jesus lives for us at the right hand of God. He offered the sacrifice on Calvary's cross one time. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. But he's constantly there as a reminder to God Almighty that we have been saved by his death for us and he ever lives To make intercession on our behalf. He makes intercession for us practically. When we confess our sins to God in his name. And he makes intercession for us legally. In a way of reminding God of what's been done on our behalf. And trust me. When the book of life is opened. It will be Jesus Christ interceding one more time. I died for that man. I died for you. Because his name's in my book. And I died for everyone in that book of life. Romans 5.10 tells us much more. We ought to be thankful for the life of Jesus Christ. How about 8.34? Romans 8.34. Romans 5.10 said much more. Romans 8.34 is going to say, yea, rather. Romans 8.34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. We have a priest that never stops working. He ever lives to make intercession for us, and that life that he now has is a life of a priest at the right hand of God, and we should rejoice in it, and we should draw nigh unto God because of the better hope that we have in the gospel. Hebrews 7. Back to Hebrews 7, verse 26. For such, 25 is a pretty good summary. But Paul is not altogether finished yet. 25 is a pretty good summary. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. 
seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He wants to tack on a few more things about this glorious priest. For such, the one that's able to save us to the uttermost, for such an high priest became us. That word became there. He's not talking about his incarnation, that God became flesh. That word became there is when we say, that dress is very becoming to you. Meaning, it is very appropriate, congruous, suitable, fitting for you. Okay? Because that is Paul's point is not the incarnation right now. Paul's point is how absolutely beautiful and delightful and precious and perfect the Lord Jesus Christ is. For such an high priest became us. It is very fitting, suitable, needful for us to have this kind of a high priest. What kind, Paul? For such an high priest became us who is holy. What is God? L-O-R-D, all caps. Is he holy? Is he very holy? Do we want a holy priest? We have such an high priest who is holy. And he's very becoming to us. He's a perfect fit. Do you know what you are compared to holiness? The opposite. By nature. But we have a priest that is holy. He is harmless. Do you want a priest that is only thinking of your good? That does good towards you? He's harmless. Do you want a priest that's mean sometimes? Forgets to make intercession for you? Lays penance on you that you really can't get done? How, how do you want to th- you think about it any way you want to? The Lord Jesus Christ is harmless. He is gentle, easy. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He doesn't ever do anything to our harm. Everything he does for us is for our good. He is good. He went about doing good as Peter preached to Cornelius. How's that for a priest? Is there a difference between a good and a bad priest? I mean, some of you are looking at me like, I don't know what that... Is there a difference between a good and a bad priest? This is a good priest. He's harmless. What else does it say about him? He's undefiled. Do you want a priest that's been defiled or do you want a blameless one? Do you want a blameless one to go before God? This one is undefiled. The Lord cannot bring anything. No man can bring anything. The devils of hell cannot bring anything in the way of accusation against the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's blameless and he's undefiled. He's separate from sinners. Do you want someone a little bit different than one of us? Do you want one of us representing you in heaven? Or do you want someone that's separate from sinners? Just a little bit better. I speak as a fool. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. What else does it say that makes him so beautiful? He's made higher than the heavens. Do you want someone on earth trying to get in touch with God in heaven? Or do you want someone that's higher than the heavens, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high? Which is what 8.1 tells us about him. Jesus Christ is the most becoming priest we could ever have. For such an high priest became us. It was fitting and suitable, congruous and agreeable and needful that we have a high priest with those five character traits. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, 
made higher than the heavens. I'm glad he is right where he is, at the right hand of Almighty God. The great and dreadful God is tempered by the Lord Jesus Christ, my holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, priest. Do you feel safe this morning? Amen. Draw nigh unto God by this better hope. Was there ever a priest in the old covenant that was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens? No. They were as low as the earth, and they were sinners themselves. Verse 27 is going to tell you that, because it's going to compare what I just read in 26 with the priests of the Old Testament, who needeth not daily, Jesus Christ does not need daily, as those high priests of the Old Testament from the tribe of Levi to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. He doesn't have to do any of that anymore, like the priests of the Old Testament, so he's better again. Verses 26 and 27 compared tell us that Jesus is a most becoming priest, most beautiful, delightful, and agreeable and suitable for our needs. And verse 27 tells us that the priests of the Old Testament weren't beautiful, weren't fitting and agreeable to our needs. Verse 28, as Paul sums up this chapter, For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. But there was no infirmity in Jesus Christ because he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. But the law made men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, what's the word of the oath? Psalm 110 verse 4. But the word of the oath which was since the law by how many years? 500. Maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Consecrated means to make someone holy and appoint them to an office by the the act of consecration. Everything in the Old Testament had to be consecrated with blood and a prayer by the priests of God. The Lord Jesus Christ has been consecrated, dedicated, ordained to his office of priest forevermore. By what? By the oath of God himself who swore that he would do it. And we have that high priest who is so becoming to us and so needful and fitting for us in heaven at this hour. If you have sinned, confess your sins in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who offered up himself one time for all of your sins past present and future. And God will forgive you in his name, brethren. Just believe it and go home and rejoice. If you don't even know this Jesus Christ that I'm talking about, run to him by faith. Tell God right now in your hearts that you love what you've just heard about his son and that you will obey him and that you want to know more about him and that you believe he is the son of God and you believe he's sitting at God's right hand. And God will confirm that to you. And if you haven't been baptized, then get baptized. To tell the God of glory that you're thankful for his son Jesus and all that he did for you. He is, since the law, made a son and consecrated a priest by the oath of God forevermore. I hope you've understood what we covered today. We have such an high priest. And do you know what Paul says in the first verse of 8 that we began with a few hours ago? Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. If you missed any of my arguments from chapter 7, and you just want to know the bottom line, do you want to know the bottom line of today? We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne 
of the majesty in the heavens. Praise the Lord. I hope you love the Lord Jesus Christ.